Throughout my childhood, our family had um, various animals, hamsters that didn't last too long, goldfish that lasted even less, but particularly cat. We had a cat for many, many years. We had a number of dogs. And uh, with the exception of one of those dogs, they were all because no one else wanted them for a variety of reasons. And then with my own family here in Nottingham, for most of the time we've been here until a couple of years ago, Rex, our dog, was a member of our family. Now, how many of you have or have had in your family a dog? Great. And how many a cat? Wow, maybe almost exactly the same number. Um, you know, canines and felines are both delightful, but they're very, very different in so many ways. I've got here a few differences between cats and dogs. This is how a dog greets his owner when he walks through the door. <laughs> Whereas a cat's greeting is more like this. Again, that's a video, but it doesn't seem to be doing very much, nor does the cat actually in the video do very much. Okay, this is how a dog looks after he's done something bad. And how a cat looks after he's done something bad. How a dog interrupts humans. How a cat interrupts humans. Dogs act like their world revolves around their master. Cats seem to think the world revolves around them. Dogs say, you feed me, you care for me, you walk me, you must be God. Cats say, you feed me, you care for me, you clean my litter box, I must be God. A guy called Stephen Hawthorne, who is a leader in Christian cross-cultural work, explained that this difference relates to how we as humans tend to read the Bible. He commented, the Bible is written for dogs, but it's often read by cats. I'll say more about that in a minute. We recently started this series on the book of Colossians. John Bodley introduced our main theme that will span across the talks throughout this book, and that is this, the way in is the way on. It's a phrase that originated with John Wimber, who founded the uh, vineyard movement across the world, and essentially it means that the way we got into this journey is the way that we continue in it. I came in needing Jesus, and I go on needing Jesus. We don't ever graduate beyond the basics, we continue to practice them every day of our walk with him. Now, the book of Colossians was written uh, as a letter by the Apostle Paul. He was the most prolific church planter of the first century, and many of his letters are contained in the pages of the Bible. He most likely wrote it from prison in Rome in about the year AD 60, and he was writing to a little church in the market town of Colossae. While Paul was in a different city, Ephesus, some years previously, a guy called Epaphras apparently came to faith in Jesus, and he then traveled to Colossae and planted this church. So even though Paul had never visited the church, he's writing in a kind of grandfatherly way. So when we read the Bible, so often we read it as cats. We turn to the Bible, and we turn it into a sort of self-help book, believing that you know, it's there basically to help me 
solve my problems. And we can fall into the trap of thinking that I am the center of my world and the Bible is basically written to help me out. But today I want to try and tip that balance completely the other way and spend our time looking at what the Bible says about God, in particular from one section in Colossians. And I want to try and read this as though it's designed for dogs so that we would end up solely focused on the wonder of the person of God. Rick Warren, who leads a large church in America, wrote a very popular best-selling book. It was called The Purpose Driven Life. And Rick starts the book with this statement. It's not about you. And for today, at least, it's not about us. It is all about Jesus. So if you have a Bible, you might like to turn with me. If you don't, uh, you may have a device, or otherwise the screens will show the text. We're reading from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, talking about Jesus, the Son. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, before we get into the content of these verses, let me just give you an analogy which illustrates what Paul is doing here as he's writing these word-upon-word descriptions. I love nature, I love architecture, I love sculpture, and for some time I've been collecting pictures of my favorite bridge. They turn up on Twitter from time to time, and I save them in my photos. And this bridge is in East Germany, near the border with Poland. It's called the Rakots Bridge. How many of you have ever seen that before? Very few of you. Great, well, I'm introducing you here. It was built in the 19th century. It's a semicircular structure, and when the water is still, the reflection forms a perfect circle. Now, though there are many angles to photograph the bridge, let's just take this one. It changes with the light. It changes with the seasons, with the time of day. Always beautiful, it changes every time it's photographed. Look at it one day, and wow. Another day, you see another aspect of its form that catches your eye. And that, for me, is a tiny picture of what this passage in Colossians is doing, what it's like to try and capture the beauty, the majesty of the person of Jesus. Every way you look at the amazing person of Jesus, there is something more to see. Like that bridge, but infinitely more amazing. We could go on looking and looking and still find there's always more to see, always more to learn. Another glimpse uh, in a different season that changes the way we see him. There's always something new to discover of who he is and what he's like. 
All of us who follow Jesus have had the experience of encountering him for the first time. The first time perhaps we glimpse something of his mercy or his love. Perhaps it was a snapshot of his grace that captured you from reading a story about him in the Bible. Perhaps you were struck when you understood that he knows, he knows you. He knows all the good stuff. He also knows all of the bad stuff. And he still passionately loves you. The way in for all of us starts with an encounter with Jesus at some point near the beginning of our journey. And it starts with seeing him or at least seeing a part of him as he is. But it isn't just a one-time revelation for that moment. The way we continue our journey is to continue seeing more and more of Jesus, to continue being captivated by him. We go on encountering him, and it continues to shape our days, our steps, our entire journey. The way in is the way on. We were captivated by this glorious person, and we continue to seek him, to gaze on him, to follow him, to try and get closer, to draw near to him, and to understand him more fully. And this passage here in Colossians helps us to continue to see Jesus better. It brings into focus a few pictures of him. And there's so much packed into these verses that we wouldn't possibly have time to look at them all today. So I just want to take three glimpses, three pictures of Jesus from this passage. The first is this, Jesus is God. We read in verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's incredible to think that Jesus, a man who lived and walked on this earth, was and is God. He was the portrait of God, the image of God. In the first chapter of John's account of Jesus' life, he says this in John 1.8, no one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made him known. We can see God when we see the face of Jesus. I wonder how many of us have ever taken a selfie, capturing on our phone a picture of ourselves at some hopefully interesting moment. Experts say, I don't know where they get this figure on because it's quite specific, but that millennials will each snap as many as 25,700 self-portraits in his or her lifetime. And did you know, last year, according to the Telegraph, more people died taking selfies than by shark attack. <laughs> the first selfie ever taken has been attributed to Robert Cornelius back in 1839, just 10 years after the invention of photography. The simple point I want to make is, Jesus is God's selfie. Jesus reveals what God is like. He's invisible, but we see in Jesus who God is. It's not that Jesus physically represents God, that they're identical in their appearance, like identical twins, but he reveals the character, he reveals the nature of God himself. About eight years ago, I visited Israel and Palestine with some other church leaders, and between meetings with various religious leaders and political leaders, we spent some time in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem. We traveled up to uh, Nazareth and the Sea of Galilee. And we walked in many of the places that Jesus had walked 2,000 years previously. We went to the site where Jesus is reckoned to have read from the text that we have on the wall over there. 
Record, this is Isaiah 61 as recorded in Luke 4. It's been rebuilt, but that synagogue, they reckon, was right there. Where he's understood to have preached the Sermon on the Mount. The Via Dolorosa, the route Jesus carried, the crossbeam of his cross on the way to his crucifixion. We went to the place Jesus was, was thought to have been crucified. Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull. And that rock formation remains today, resembling a skull. We visited both of the possible sites where Jesus was buried. We went inside the garden tomb, cut into the rock. And I just stood there in that semi-darkness in there and imagined, wow, what if this was the tomb? I mean, it's got like a one in two chance, they reckon, of being it, because they built a sepulcher on the other one. But what was, imagine Jesus' body laying there on this stone slab 2,000 years ago. At a restaurant by the Sea of Galilee, we ate freshly caught tilapia, otherwise known as St. Peter's fish, just as Jesus would have done with his disciples on that same shore. It's amazing to think about the person of Jesus existing within a specific time and space. Jesus is an historical figure. Did you know for whom there is a lot more evidence for his existence uh, and of his life than there is for Julius Caesar? He was a real person. He had a physical body. He walked along roads. He spent time up mountains and in gardens, which remain almost unchanged to this day. It really is phenomenal to think that God lived on this earth as a person at a particular point in time. If we want to know what God is like, we can see him in Jesus. If we want to know God, we can know him by looking at Jesus and reading the Gospels and seeing the way Jesus handled himself and handled other people. Jesus perfectly reveals the Father. He is the exact representation of the eternal God. To see Jesus is to see God. In John's account, Jesus says this of himself. Those who believe in me do not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When they look at me, they see the one who sent me. Do you ever wonder what God, who is invisible to us, would say about something, how he would feel about something, how he would respond in a situation? Have you ever faced a situation you just really want to know what, what would God think in this situation? Well, the amazing truth is we can know. We can with confidence know what God feels and what God thinks. We can know what God is like because Jesus perfectly represents his Father. We have a snapshot of the eternal God in the face of the person of Jesus Christ. So how can Jesus represent God so completely? How, how is that possible? In verse 19, we read this. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's an amazing statement. All the fullness of God somehow dwelt in this man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't like meeting the ambassador of a country, say Thailand, who's representing the views and interests of the president. This is a person with identical DNA to the one who sent him. Someone who can represent him exactly because they are one in being. The Nicene Creed says this, Jesus is one in substance with the Father. Jesus can represent the Father perfectly because Jesus is God. Now, I could 
uh, spend forever dwelling on that, pondering in awe of that one fact. But with Jesus, there's always more to discover, more to learn, more to experience. Like that picture, those pictures of the Rakots Bridge, there's always more to see. So let's move on to the, from that. It's a huge one, the Trinity, that whole doctrine and how God was in Jesus. Jesus was God. So the second picture I want to highlight is this. Jesus is before. We find here in verse 17, he is before all things. He's before all things. And that's where, if it's already hard, it can start to get more difficult as we get our heads around this. It's hard to capture this concept in words. I could say Jesus was pre-existent, or that Jesus is eternal, but in simple language, Jesus is before. We're talking about the past, which stretches out infinitely, eternally, and it can be hard for our minds to, you know, just understand the concept of eternity. Many of you will know the hymn Amazing Grace, which has a verse in it which talks about heaven. And it says this, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And I remember as a boy about age 10, excitedly reading that or hearing that or singing it, and I ran downstairs, as I recall it, to my mother to explain just how amazing I found this concept. Eternity is eternal. And even after we've been in heaven for 10,000 years, the amount of time that we still have to go is not eternity minus 10,000. It's unchanged. We still have eternity ahead of us. The great space explorer Buzz Lightyear famously said, to infinity and beyond, a phrase which actually doesn't mean anything. There is nothing beyond eternity because eternity is eternal. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we read that God has set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. It's like God deposited in each human the capacity to think about, to even desire an existence that never ends. To consider the passing of time that stretches out into the past and into the future. And it seems that God has set this appetite in every person because he alone, the eternal one, can satisfy it. Paul says Jesus is before. And notice that Paul is talking about Jesus here in the present tense. He is before. Not he was before, he is before. In the book of Revelation, in the Bible, just at the end of the Bible, we see how it all culminates, and we find both God and Jesus referring to themselves as the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. In other words, God is saying he is the first and he is the last. He is the beginning and he is the end. There is nothing before him, there will be, and there is nothing after him. Now, I assume most of you will be familiar with the Back to the Future films. If you go back far enough, you'll remember those. Uh, and imagine for a moment you're Dr. Emmett Brown. You're punching numbers into the time machine control there in your DeLorean. Choose any date in the past. 
Imagine punching the number in and off you go. Maybe you go so far back the universe hasn't yet been created. It's just darkness. What we understand from this verse is that however far you go back in time, you will encounter Jesus. Jesus will be there. Now imagine punching in a number far into the future, way past hoverboards and shoes with laces that tie automatically. Imagine going to the furthest state you could possibly dream of. No matter how far you go, you will encounter Jesus. Whether in the past, in the present, or the future, Jesus is. A good friend of mine, Rich Nathan, who leads Vineyard Columbus in the States, said this on this point. There can't be two Alpha and Omegas unless these two are one. Two can't be the first, and two can't be the last unless they are one. So Christ, Jesus, is claiming for himself in Revelation a shared being, a shared existence with God. That gives him a glory, that gives him a greatness, that gives him a supremacy that calls forth our worship. The wonderful part of it is that for those who are in relationship with Jesus, we begin, as we come into relationship, we begin that eternal life now. We don't wait for eternity to begin. We step into it so that in the moment of death, we simply go straight to be with him. We will be with him forever, able to enjoy his awesome company, to be captivated, to be completely satisfied with him. What an incredible future we look forward to, eternity. Don't worry if it scares you. Don't worry if your mind is boggled by the concept. It's okay. We live with mystery. We're tiny little finite beings on a tiny little, you know, in a tiny building in a tiny country in a tiny planet and an awesome God. Let's not worry about understanding everything. Let's just say, wow, eternity. It never ends that we will get to be with God. So Jesus is God. Jesus is before. And one last picture I want to mention today. Jesus is supreme. There are many things that Jesus is in this passage. And I just want you to notice with me the number of times that Paul says all things or everything in this passage. So let's look at this in verse 15. He is over all creation. Verse 16, in him all things were created. All things have been created through him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, in everything he might have the supremacy. Verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things. Paul states that point over and over again, seven times. There are six alls and one everything. Uh, Jesus is supreme over all things, everything, all of creation. There is no separation between the areas over which he is supreme and the areas over which he is not. Paul spells it out twice for us that all things means on all things on earth, and all things in heaven. So verse 16, he says this, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things. And then verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. 
is rubbing the point in. Why is he choosing to spell it out so clearly? He could have just said all things once and we would have got the point probably. He's obviously choosing to drive home a point here. You see, the church in Colossae at that time was being influenced by some different ideas, different teachings that were coming in. And one of those distorted teachings led people in the church to assume that God was only interested in the spiritual side of life, not in the physical aspects. And Paul is, in this paragraph, just confronting this belief head on. Jesus isn't just supreme over the spiritual things. He's supreme over everything, both the spiritual, the physical, everything was created by him. And there may be times, you know, when we get, we kind of buy into this philosophy that life is divided into separate compartments. We have the spiritual bits where God is present, where he's involved, and then we have all those other everyday bits where God isn't really that much interested. We might think he's definitely involved, you know, when we're at church, but surely not when we're eating our dinner in front of Strictly. Have you ever thought that God prefers it when you're being spiritual? Do you think God only enjoys it when you, you, know, you sit in your room and pray and read your Bible? Does he only like it on the evenings that our small groups gather to pray and sing songs and open the scriptures? What does God think when you enjoy a good meal with friends? Or you enjoy a walk, go for a walk on your own, or if you have a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend, go walk hand in hand with them. Or when you're doing DIY on the house, or taking a drive, you've got the radio turned up, you're taking a drive through the country. The Jesus we read of here in Colossians is over all things, every part of life, even when we're shopping, even when we're reading a story to our little child, even when we're, even when we're watching Strictly. We affirm that all of life was created by good, by a good creator and we're free to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us and uh, welcome his presence as we enjoy those things and therefore there's there's no separation between what is holy and what is not a Dutch theologian called Abraham Kuyper once said this there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out this is mine this belongs to me so Jesus is over all things, but he also made all things. Here are a few different verses from the Bible that speak about this. Verse 16 here, in him all things were created. John 1, 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And here again in verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. These are incredible words. From these, we can take this amazing insight that God was present, sorry, Jesus was present there when God spoke into the darkness and created light. He was present when God made the first man out of the dust. But he wasn't only present, he was integral to all of it being made. Everything we see in creation was made through him. And without Jesus, without him, we wouldn't have any of it. All the realities you can think of. Wherever you look around you, the chair you're sat on, the air you just breathed in, the light that enables you to see me right now, it all owes its very existence to Jesus. And what is more, it's all for him. He is the goal and the end of creation itself. It all exists ultimately for his glory.
So in the beginning, he made it all, and in the end, it all exists for him. Now, I could go on and on with the other images, the other pictures in this passage we could spend time looking at just from these few verses, but I could focus, for instance, on Jesus as the sustainer of what he makes, how he doesn't just make something and then stand back and watch it run itself into the ground, but he services what he makes, like a watchmaker who keeps adjusting what he's made to make sure it keeps perfect time. I could talk about Jesus as the one who holds everything together, how all things continue to depend upon his sustaining power for their continued existence. I could describe Jesus as it does here as the head of the church, the one who is leading it, or Jesus as the reconciler between people and God. I could go on and on and on. I won't do. There's so much more to see and discover about Jesus. Perhaps you're here today and all this is a little bit new to you. Maybe you've heard of Jesus before, but you've never really considered that he was a real historical person in time and space or a person who is present today and seeking you out. Maybe you've never encountered him personally. Today is an opportunity, if you wanted to, to begin your journey with him, to find your way in to experiencing a relationship with God himself. It all starts with a glimpse of this wonderful and glorious person, of discovering that he is totally other, totally different, and yet always and entirely accessible and wanting to be intimately involved in your life. There may be others, as I've talked tonight, uh, who are realizing, you know, I've lost sight of some of the, the Jesus that we are describing here, Paul is describing Perhaps you were once full of awe and admiration early in your journey, but other things have kind of caught your attention, crowded out the wonder of your relationship with Jesus. And there's an opportunity tonight to go that bit deeper, to forge a connection deeper with Jesus, to ask for help. Maybe someone will pray for you here at the front. Help it to, in continuing to grow in your love for Jesus, your appreciation of him, your affection for him. No matter how long you've been on a journey of faith, there is always more to discover. There are endless aspects of the person of Jesus to gaze on, to be captured by. Like that picture of the Rakots Bridge, every day is an opportunity for another look, another glimpse in a different light through the seasons of our lives. We'll never run out of things to see when we continue to gaze on the most beautiful person who has ever lived. And my prayer is that we will all continue to be captivated and satisfied by him alone.